folks. Welcome back to the Whoop podcast. I'm your host, Will Ahmed, the founder and CEO of Whoop, and we are on a mission to unlock human performance. So we build technology across hardware and software and analytics that's designed to better understand your body. That includes measurements around strain and recovery and sleep. Whoop members will notice the recent update to adding respiratory rate trends in the Whoop app. That's a great way to keep an eye on things during this unusual time within COVID-19. And if you don't have a Whoop membership, you can use the code WILLAHMED and get 15% off a Whoop membership. That's WILLAHMED, W-I-L-L-A-H-M-E-D. In this week's episode, I am actually the guest and I'm being interviewed on the Behind the Horns podcast, which is hosted by Noble founders, Michael Schaefer and Marcus Wilson. Noble's a high-performance footwear and apparel company. I interview those guys on episode 25 of the Whoop podcast. And this is a good one because I, I go deep on the inspiration behind founding Whoop, what it takes to build a business and some of the challenges that you may face as an entrepreneur, how Whoop tracks and calculates your strain, your recovery, your sleep, We go very deep on HRV and I answer some of their questions about their data. Uh, We talk about how Whoop can indicate you might be getting sick. So funny enough, we recorded this before the COVID-19 crisis, but this particular part of our conversation, I think, rings really true, uh, especially today. Uh, How alcohol affects your body and uh, some of my favorite travel hacks. So I think this is a good one if you're looking for more information on Whoop, how it came to be, and what we do. Without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to our hosts, Michael and Marcus. Thank you for being here, Will. Thanks for having me, Michael, Marcus. It's good to be here. So let's just start off with telling everybody about Whoop. So our our mission at Whoop is really to unlock human performance. We believe every individual has an inner potential that you can tap into if you can better understand their bodies and their behaviors. And we've built technology really across hardware and software and analytics designed to continuously understand you. So it starts with a, with a small sensor. It's measuring your body uh, 24-7. Uh, and it's sending data from uh, the sensor to your phone, phone to the cloud. One of the main things that differentiates Whoop is we have a big focus on sleep and recovery and strain. And we also collect way more data than any other product in the market. So we collect about 50 to 100 megabytes of data on a person per day. And we sample data about 1,000 to 10,000 times as much as, say, a Fitbit or an Apple Watch. So it's a huge focus on health data. It's a big focus on performance. Our origins are really in professional sports. So we started working with really the best athletes in the world uh, when, when the first product came out. And, you know, two of our first hundred users were people like LeBron James and Michael Phelps. And uh, we became partners with the NFL Players Association. So we were distributed to every player in the NFL. We um, became the first product approved in Major League Baseball. We got to work with incredible people like the Navy SEALs. Over time, we we developed Whoop into uh, a consumer brand. And so now today, uh, we're on our third generation of hardware. And so it's been a, it's been a pretty fascinating evolution from high-end sports wearable to now a product that a lot of people are finding value in and just bettering their daily lives. So I've been wearing Whoop since 
2017 daily. And, uh, and I have a million questions for you related to strain, <laughs> recovery, sleep, all these things. Uh, before we get to that, I would love to hear how you got started. Yeah, I got into this space because I was always into sports and exercise myself. I was playing squash pretty competitively when I was growing up and I got recruited to Harvard to play squash and I became captain of the team there. And I felt like I didn't know what I was doing to my body while I was training. You know, a lot of uh, athletes overtrain, undertrain, misinterpret fitness peaks, don't necessarily understand the importance of recovery or sleep. And I was certainly one of them. Like I used to overtrain almost every season, which is the ultimate betrayal because you're putting so much effort into getting fitter and stronger. And then all of a sudden you fall off a cliff because you've just pushed your body well past what it's capable of. And so I got very interested in, okay, well, what could I measure about my body to prevent me from doing that? And at a school like Harvard, it actually felt like the three or four hours that I was spending exercising was some of the least intellectual time I was spending. Like it just seemed like it was, we were frozen in time with the way we thought about exercise. So I did a ton of physiology research. I read something like 500 medical papers while I was in school. And I ultimately wrote a paper myself around how I thought you could continuously understand the human body. And that really became uh, the business plan for WHOOP. You know, I didn't uh, set out to start a company as an undergraduate in school, but one thing just led to another, and I just became completely obsessed with this concept of continuously monitoring the human body. The other thing I'll say is that I was always fascinated by technology from a really young age, and I felt um, like there was this natural evolution of uh, computers going from, you know, being on your desk to being on your lap to being in your pocket to eventually being on your body or in your body. And uh, and I felt like that was a, a wave that was coming that um, hadn't really touched health at all. And so the combination of those two things got me quite fascinated with this idea of starting Whoop. And about six months after I founded the company, I was fortunate to meet a guy named John Capilupo. And John was um, studying a lot of the hardest math classes in the country. And his father, as it turns out, is a professor of exercise physiology. <laughs> so the two of us had a real overlap around uh, physiology. Yeah. And he had the technical chops to do some things from a sensing standpoint that hadn't been done before. And I had a vision for how to build a product for coaches and athletes and beyond. And so we started working together. This would have been summer of 2012. I had just graduated from Harvard. John had just finished his sophomore year. I think he was 19. I was 22, maybe something like that. And, uh, and we were off for the races from there. So now today, Whoop is about uh, 150 employees. We've raised a little over $100 million to date. Uh, and we serve a ton of different markets. So it's been a pretty wild journey, and there's a lot that's happened in between those two <laughs> endpoints. That's that's phenomenal. It's interesting because Michael and I got started in 2012 is kind of when we first said, you know, let's yeah, after totally. it and build something. Um, but building a, well, do you, con do you consider Whoop a tech company? Like, how do you refer to the company? I mean, at, at its core, we are a technology company. Yeah. I think a lot of our differentiation is around data and analytics. So we actually think of ourselves as more of a SaaS business than a hardware business. Most of our differentiation over time is coming from the way that we're communicating value to you and the way that we're explaining data. So we, we anchor ourselves primarily around data and analytics, uh, which ties us more to the SaaS world of things or software as a service. 
And a lot of our, I would say, intellectual property is around the way the whole system comes together. It's not any single piece of what, what it takes to monitor your body. It's sort of this holistic approach. So it's interesting, I would imagine with technology, you mentioned that you raise over $100 million. There was probably a lot of money required to get it off the ground. So starting in the summer of 2012, how long was it before you actually started generating revenue? Oh, it was years before we were generating revenue. We were a cash burning machine in some ways, <laughs> you know, uh, but, you know, we were chasing pretty hardcore intellectual property. Yeah. And in 2012, you know, Fitbit was probably valued at 20 to $50 million. Yeah. You know, it just mm -hmm. sold for two and a half billion dollars. So it was a tiny company. Yeah. Really, the, the main technology in the market were polar chest straps, which I thought right. were absurd. Yeah. And I was convinced those were going to go away. Mm -hmm. uh, for those who are unfamiliar, ch chest straps, you know, they go yeah. around your chest. They measure your heart rate quite accurately. Uh, you have to spit on them. They're super uncomfortable to wear. You often get a rash from it them. It slide down. Significantly worse <laughs> for women for obvious reasons. Yeah. So they're, it, they're just, you know, uh, antiquated technology. And... Products like Jawbone uh, hadn't even started yet. The fuel, Nike Fuel Band hadn't even been created yet. Uh, and in fact, when Jawbone and Fitbit were suing each other over intellectual property breach, Whoop in that court case was listed as prior art to those two companies. Huh. So that just shows you how early we were to yeah. the space. And if anything, part of our success has just been surviving long enough not to die. You know, there's a ton of other, there's we've, a ton of, other, yeah. and look, there's a ton of other companies out there that are in a graveyard because they kind of shot out of a rocket and then ultimately fizzled. Yeah. You know, Jawbone, Nike Fuel Bin, Basis, uh, there's a company called Qantas, uh, Project Florida. These are all companies that at one point I had to talk about in the process of raising money or how is Whoop differentiated. And, uh, and now fortunately there's actually less players in the market than there were in arguably 2015. Yeah, for me, it's it's great because it there's so much data there, but you present it in such a, a digestible way. Thank you, yeah, Which has uh, been really good to see. Yeah, I think one challenge to collecting as much information as we do is having the restraint around what you actually show to someone. I like to say to our product and design team, the more information we collect, actually the less information we have to show to the end user. Yeah. And so, Thinking about data in layers is a pretty healthy, a pretty healthy concept. Uh, there's a there's a feeling that you have when you work so hard to collect all this information that you have to show it off. Hey, look at all these things that we collect. Yeah. But then you, you just recognize that a user is looking at 25 different data points and they don't know what to do with it. So to your point, uh, you know, we summarize things um, really first across strain and recovery and sleep. Strain and recovery being the two major anchor points. So you can think of strain as the intensity of uh, a workout or the intensity of your day or even the intensity of this podcast, right, which feels relatively low. Uh, but you can, imagine other, you can imagine other moments in time where you're stressed, right, and that's yeah. elevating your strain. So we measure strain continuously. And then what we also do is every morning we give you a recovery score from zero to 100%, uh, red, yellow, green. And what that recovery score is doing is it's telling you how prepared your body is for strain. So ideally, if your body is more recovered, you take on more strain. And if your body is less recovered, you take on less strain. And if you think back to the problem that I had as a college athlete of overtraining, 
a lot of that is you're taking on more strain than your body has recovered, right? It's just an imbalance. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of what we've tried to do with Whoop is make it actionable, where it's it's trying to live a step ahead of you rather than focused on what just happened. Mm -hmm. And that, in turn, can help inspire behavior change and, and performance gains. So recovery, right? Yeah. What drives recovery? Well, th there's a couple ways to think about that question. From, from a purely WHOOP standpoint, the way we measure recovery is a combination of the quality of your sleep, heart rate variability, and resting heart rate. The single most important variable in that is something called heart rate variability, which is this incredibly interesting statistic uh, that's kind of like a secret that your body is trying to tell you. It's this fascinating lens into your body. And heart rate variability is literally the time between successive beats of the heart. So if your heart is beating at 60 beats per minute, it's not actually beating every second. It might be beating at 1.2 seconds and then 0.8 seconds and then 1.3 and then 0.7. And that variability of time between beats is actually a good thing. It's super counterintuitive, but the higher your heart rate variability, the better. And the reason for that is it's a lens into your autonomic nervous system. So we're going to geek out for a second. Your autonomic nervous system consists of sympathetic and parasympathetic activity. So sympathetic is activation, right? That's heart rate up, blood pressure up, respiration up. It's what's happening when you're stressed or you're exercising, you're thinking about something. When you inhale, that's sympathetic. Parasympathetic is all the opposite. Heart rate down, blood pressure down, respiration down. It's what helps you fall asleep. Right. And what you actually want is for every sympathetic to have a parasympathetic response. That effectively is your body governing itself. It's managing you and your environment. You can think about it, if you're all sympathetic, your body's not actually reacting properly to its environment, right? Because it's just stressed. And that's why things like meditation can be powerful because you're literally triggering your sympathetic and parasympathetic. When you inhale, it's sympathetic. When you exhale, it's parasympathetic. So anyway, heart rate variability is a measurement of your autonomic nervous system. It's a measurement of how in tune sympathetic and parasympathetic activity are. And we're able to measure your heart rate variability during the last five minutes of your slow wave sleep. Now we measure it 24-7, but in particular, if you measure heart rate variability during slow wave sleep... That's when your body's repairing itself. So by measuring this lens into your autonomic nervous system while your body's repairing itself, we have this fascinating understanding of the status of your body. And that in turn is what's generating a recovery score. That's awesome. So I had never heard of heart rate variability until I started wearing a whoop. Yeah. And uh, I was trying to explain, I listened to one of your podcasts on heart rate variability and I found myself... Uh, at my kitchen table trying to explain what heart rate var variability was to my wife, her brother, and her cousin. All of them are doctors. And then as I got I got about halfway through it, I realized that I ha I was like way over Sammy, my head. So I'll just like, so I'm just going to play that clip for them uh, around all yeah, of that Yeah, there's stuff. a few different layers to what I said. But but the other thing that's quite fascinating is the, the correlation with uh, sleep here. Right. So sleep is obviously when your body is repairing itself and whoop has a big focus on sleep. And in particular, whoop measures the stages of sleep quite accurately. So we've done hundreds of studies against a PSG machine. PSG is like the gold standard for measuring sleep. And we've been able to show that whoop measures your slow wave and your REM sleep and the periods of time in which you're light and awake as accurately as a PSG. Now, why is that powerful? 
It's powerful because actually the amount of time that you spend in slow wave and REM is so much more valuable than the other periods of sleep. If you spend eight hours in bed and you only get 30 minutes of REM and slow wave sleep, that's actually way less effective than the person who spends six hours in bed and gets three hours of REM and slow wave. And by the way, the, 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 the degree to which I just described those and the separation there, that actually exists. There are people who spend eight hours and get 30 and there are people who spend six and get three, right? Now, why are slow wave sleep and REM sleep super important? REM sleep is when your mind is repairing. Uh, if you ever talk to a doctor and they ask you, did you dream last night or do you dream in general? What they're actually trying to get at is how much REM sleep do you get? Although they may not tell you that. Uh, slow wave sleep, as you guys know, is when uh, 95% of your human growth hormone is produced. So people think you get stronger in the gym. Actually, in the gym, you're tearing your muscles. Slow wave sleep is when you repair your muscles because that's when you're producing human growth hormone. So if somebody then sleeps for eight hours and has only a little bit of REM versus six hours and, and more REM. So they, they sleep shorter, but the quality is not as good. Do they actually feel more rested, the people that sleep for eight hours or the people that sleep for the six hours with the more REM? Like, do, do you actually feel the difference? The yeah, difference so when you wake up? I mean, you can track it, right? With data, but how do you feel so about it? So physiologically, the person who got more quality sleep, so that in this case would be the six hour person, yep. would physiologically have better statistics. Yeah. Now, feelings are a funny thing because your feelings are often wrong. Mm -hmm. You may wake up in the morning feeling a little groggy and later that day go do some kind of athletic event and have the best performance of your life. Yeah. I mean, you hear anecdotes about this from professional athletes all the time. In fact, sometimes professional athletes, when they're feeling their peak, will actually wake up in the morning feeling a little sick. It's a bizarre phenomenon. Huh. So feelings are a little bit overrated, which yeah. is why, again... I think it's so important to have something that can actually truly measure what's happening inside your body. When we compare HRV, so I, I track it periodically. Yeah. I'm a couple years older than Marcus. A lot older than Marcus. <laughs> but um, when uh, my, my baseline is always much lower, right? And I consider myself a fit person. I work out every day, but um, I just can't get it. I can't get the HRV to, to get to a higher level over, you know, even over months. Is there a genetic factor to that? Is it purely how I recover? Like how does and just to be clear, Michael's insanely fit, right? We had yeah, we've done yeah, we've fit. done you know team like uh, tough mutters, and it was Michael and Jed, and Jed is in his mid twenties that were just like miles ahead of everybody. But you're you're always higher, right? On the on the HIV, which which is better, right? It's considered more. So a good way to think about heart rate variability is that you want to keep your heart rate variability at the same level or even increase it over a long period of time. Yeah. So everyone has their own personal baseline and a good degree of that is genetic, but it also ties closely to fitness and health. So if over a two or five year period, uh, you can actually keep your heart rate variability flat, that's actually a very good sign because what happens is age decays your heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. Now, the gap between the two of you may be part genetic and part age. Interesting. It's not necessarily a direct reflection on fitness, right? Because yep. we have people on Whoop who are fit that's heart rate variability is a little bit lower. Yep. And we have people who are... Um, actually less fit and have just sort of unusually high heart rate variabilities. So one interesting thing you mentioned in your last uh, paragraph was also about health, right? So how does health, which which you might not, maybe you, you don't even think you're sick, maybe you don't have a disease that you know of, could that 
be showing up in these results that there's some underlying issue potentially if yours is lower but you are fit physically yeah i mean we've had fascinating results from from whoop members you know a lot of them writing in saying hey i felt fine whoop gave me a red recovery three days in a row i felt fine i felt fine and then on the fourth day i woke up and i had the flu mm -hmm. you know or i had it's um, happened to me a couple of times crazy. where it's just like i feel like i got a really good night's sleep and i just was surprised to see that I was in the red. And yeah. then uh, a couple of days later or the next day, I started to get a sore throat and all that. So it's a little spooky yeah. actually. Now it's, what's great is on the flip of that, sometimes you'll feel a little sick and whoop will say you're fine. And it yeah. kind of reminds you like, okay, you know, when I wake up, I always try to think about how I feel before I look at my whoop yeah. because there are times <laughs> where it's just like it yeah. literally, if I'm, if I'm waking up and uh, I look at it and I'm in the red, then I'm, then I'm immediately feeling like, you know, damn, I didn't get enough sleep or something's going on. How does nutrition, aside from meditation, mindfulness, and recovery through sleeping, how does nutrition have an effect on, or, or does it? I, I don't know. I'm just geeking out. Um, <laughs> yeah, it has a massive effect. Yeah. And the, the reality, as you guys know, is the reason there's so many diets out there is there's no one diet that's right for everyone, right? right? And so one thing that we encourage people to do with WHOOP is to observe how different things that they're putting in their body affect their physiology, right? Affect their performance. And in some ways, I think you can only really manage what you measure. So if you think things like rate of recovery is important or how well you sleep or your baseline physiology, you need to measure those things to be able to manage against it. Now, let's say you think you should go on a keto diet, right? Well, a smart way to think about that is, okay, what does your body look like for 30 days before that? What does it look like for 38 days during? And then if you drop off, what does it look like afterwards? And by the way, we've seen crazy different results. Some people, it looks like the best thing that's ever happened to them. Some people, it looks like they've redlined for 25 days, mm -hmm. you know, plant-based diet, uh, you know, keto, paleo, uh, all these different types of, of nutrition that I think are popular in some of the circles that we run. There's a good way to measure whether or not they're right for you. Uh, at the professional level, we, we worked with professional athletes when they went through some of these things like paleo was super popular in the NBA, maybe three years ago or so. And I remember uh, LeBron was playing with Ray Allen and Ray Allen had amazing results from paleo. LeBron went on paleo and this was a period where he was wearing whoop pretty intensely and he had terrible data from being on that diet. And sure enough, his trainer took him off it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So it's just an interesting example of, you know, not everything's right for everyone and you have to measure against it. The last thing I'll add, and this relates to nutrition, alcohol has a profoundly bad effect, <laughs> Damn it. has a profoundly bad effect mm. on your physiology. Like uh, having the flu and being hung over from a physiological standpoint are almost indistinguishable, which wow. is a fascinating concept. It's amazing to me, two glasses of wine yeah. within, within four hours of bed has a, a, a severe effect on me. It's just crazy. It's a few factors. One is um, your body weight. The other is how many drinks you have. The other is actually the type of alcohol. So clear alcohol is better than colored alcohol, typically. So if you're going to have like vodka and gin, that's actually better than say whiskey or beer. <laughs> and then the last thing is the amount of time before bed. So if you drink really close to bed versus four hours before that'll affect it. But here you're mm -hmm. describing two glasses of wine. Wine's better than a lot of other alcohols. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, four hours before bed, which is actually a good amount of time, and you're still seeing it in your data, yeah. which just goes to show that it has a profound effect. Question on hardware. So you were saying hardware is going from desktop to laptop, wrist now, right? And then potentially in your body. Like how do you, I mean, you probably can't even talk about most of that, but are you guys, uh, do you have a lab where you think about what hardware looks like down the road, 10 years, 15 years down the road, where it's going? Yeah, I mean, you're. I think as an entrepreneur or an innovator in technology, you're kind of always balancing this moment in time where you want to have your, your feet on the ground and figure out what's the next thing to do, but you want to have your eyes in the sky of where it can go. Yeah. And that's how we approach it. Our, our overall philosophy is that wearable technology should either be cool or invisible. Hmm. And I think a lot of wearable technology is stuck in the middle. You know, it's something you notice and it's not particularly cool. And the justification for that is, well, it's tech. It's you know supposed to do all these things for you. But I think that's lazy. So we try to straddle two pretty diametrically different ends of the spectrum. Um, on the cool front, you know, what is an aesthetic that you're comfortable wearing? And from that standpoint, you know, we designed something that's actually pretty customizable. Uh, this sensor, you can dress up with all sorts of different bands. Uh, you, you can put all sorts of different classes on it. We wanted to, it to feel ownable, especially if it's something that's going to be sitting on your wrist uh, for a large percentage of the day. Now, beyond that, if you think about invisible, we want this to be something that can actually disappear on your body. And so while today a lot of people wear the sensor you know, on their wrist, mm -hmm. You can actually wear it on your upper arm. You can wear it on your shoulder. Oh, interesting. I didn't know and that. And over yeah. time, this is going to be able to live throughout the body. Yep. And so a lot of what we're doing with the sensor is just getting it to be smaller and smarter. And we're going to keep doubling down on those two ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. The spectrum related to cool and the spectrum related to invisible. He just basically completely took the, the whoop apart <laughs> and took the smallest possible pieces and, and shows how it can move around your body. That's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So I just have some random questions for you because I'm just very curious about like HRV. What is the, the highest HRV numbers that you've seen? We've seen numbers between like 300 and 400, which to put that in perspective for people who have no context of HRV, you know, good numbers show up between 50 and 120. What it tends to be is it tends to be like an Olympic caliber swimmer or yeah. runner. Because at the end of the day, it is a Wells. primarily it's a primarily <laughs> cardiovascular metric. Yeah. So you're looking at how healthy someone's heart is, and so that tends to skew a little bit better towards people who are doing massively intense cardiovascular sports. Yeah. And then again, it's genetic, right? Do people do people actually guard that data? Is it like a competitive advantage to like do people talk about it and share that are competing with each other? Yeah, it varies a lot by sport. Yeah. You know, again, we've worked across literally every professional sport at this point, and you see different cultural dynamics like at every level. I think that team sports can tend to be more collaborative, you know. So if you're on a basketball team, you're the center, I'm the point guard. I'm not I'm not that worried that you're gonna take my job, right? I'm right. curious what your stats are, you're curious what mine are. So it's a little bit more collaborative. Yeah. I think if you're um, you know, an individual competitor, maybe it's something you want to keep closer to the chest. Mm -hmm. But again, it varies. You know, there's there's a level of openness right now with everything related to privacy that I don't think people saw coming decades ago. You know, if you think about just even where Instagram has taken people of, 
you know, photographing every possible, you know, aspect of a high, high profile person's life, you know, up to the moment of this is my exact location. It's a pretty remarkable moment in time that we live. And I think that with health data that I look at this from a very optimistic, potentially idealistic lens, which is that high profile people like who we're talking about, um, athletes and others have a, a remarkable opportunity to influence culture positively through an understanding of what they do to perform well. Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about it, it was really only maybe 30 years ago that professional athletes started lifting weights. You can't go to a hotel in America that doesn't have a gym today. Mm-hmm. And that story I think was really told through professional sports. And if I look at the next story that high performing people are going to tell to society, I think it's going to be around sleep and recovery. And that was the bet I made effectively 10 years ago in the process of getting interested in whoop was, wow, there's this whole other aspect to your life, which is around sleep and recovery that to me doesn't feel like it's getting properly covered. And what does it take an athlete like Tom Brady to be performing at an MVP caliber level at age 42 in the NFL? What is he doing to his body or LeBron James Mm -hmm. or Ray Allen and these people who had these sort of weirdly long careers? Because the reality is that information isn't just going to benefit the next LeBron James, it's going to benefit you and me, right? And in thinking about how we live our lives and thinking about some of the things that we put in our bodies and thinking about some of the different behaviors that we have. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I think Whoop has a, a pretty powerful opportunity to try to communicate some of those stories with data. So across different sports, you know, how do, uh, how should athletes be thinking about whoop and do you see different information or different uh, data sets for like CrossFit athletes versus, you know, NFL players or other sports? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think that in general, uh, you have to ask yourself, well, what are some of the problems or challenges that someone faces in a sport, right? In the case of CrossFit, you know, it has a high rate actually of injury and overtraining. Part of what makes CrossFit so compelling is that it's working new muscles that someone who's new to CrossFit maybe has never used, but that also can trigger uh, injuries and it can trigger overtraining. So that's where looking at recovery becomes super important. We find that a lot of the CrossFitters on the on Whoop get very obsessive about hey, am I at a green level today if I'm going to be doing this new challenge uh, at a CrossFit? And, and if I'm not thinking about, are there ways to maybe go more high rep versus high weight? Mm-hmm. That's one good way to, to offset against recovery for those WHOOP members listening. You know, if you've got a lower recovery or mid-level recovery, consider doing more reps versus more weight. And then, you know, I think the thing that holds all of these different populations together doesn't matter if you're a professional athlete or an executive or someone who's just trying to get back into shape understanding your sleep is so fundamental. And so we really see everyone on Whoop gravitate to sleep and the sleep coach and thinking about some of those concepts we, we talked about with REM sleep and slow wave sleep. So have you seen things expand, like starting with professional athletes? So how, uh, who's wearing Whoop today, you know, outside of the uh, professional athlete world? Uh, it's been really interesting to meet a bunch of different CEOs, some Fortune 500 CEOs, uh, people who have really stressful jobs, people who travel a lot, um, potentially aren't in control of their sleep schedule as much as they'd like. And just hearing from them how they've used Whoop to try to offset that stress, try to offset some of those challenges. Okay, you've got an earnings call on Wednesday, it's Sunday. 
you know, think about how you're preparing for that Wednesday the same way, you know, an Olympian or a professional athlete's preparing for that game on Wednesday, right? Mm-hmm. We've got surgeons and doctors on WHOOP. You know, this is a population, take a surgeon, right? You're a trauma surgeon. You're often uh, in a hospital for 18 hours at yeah. a time. Someone comes in from the ER, bullet wound. You've got seven minutes to figure out whether or not that person can live. I mean, that's a super intense lifestyle, right? How is that person making sure that they're optimal every day, right? That's a really powerful question for society. What are we doing in society to make sure that person can be optimal? Should that person be spending 18 hours a day in a hospital? So that's a, that's a super interesting population. Uh, you know, we see people like firemen, cops, people who are on their feet a lot, right? So mm-hmm. their daily activity, we talked about daily strain, their daily activity is pretty elevated. We're starting to see more youth athletes on WHOOP. So people between the ages of, say, 14 and 20, right? There, there's been a bit of a cultural shift, unfortunately, in youth sports to specialize earlier. I'm sure you guys have seen this, where instead of, you know, I was probably playing six sports when I was 14 yeah. years old. Now, okay, I'm going to be a shortstop uh, age 12, and that's the only thing I'm doing nine months out of the year. Definitely not a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it is either. But but Whoop is, you know, a product that can help an individual uh, understand, okay, what am I doing to my body, right? Yeah, you know what's interesting is my uh, 14-year-old daughter uh, is wearing a Whoop. And the thing that is really uh, exciting to me was she now pays more attention to sleep. And right. so she, I find her going to bed on her own right. uh, earlier without my wife or I having to tell her, which has been a really cool thing. And then we get a little bit competitive on some of these things too, which Are is- you uh, you tying her allowance into her recovery <laughs> yeah. score? That You're actually, not recovered today. It might be a fun game yeah. actually. No, but, that, we, we've heard that too, where it's a bit of a thank you because Whoop is the is the parent when it comes to, hey, go to bed. Yeah, you yeah, because you start thinking about it and it's just like- I know what I need to do to have a good recovery the next day, you know, barring being sick or any of those types of things. Yeah. The question is just doing those things. Yeah. So what, what keeps you up then at night? If, if you are up at night, what are you thinking about? You know, related to the business, I think that our big focus for us now is on growth. So we were about 45 employees at the end of last year. Right now we're, around 140. Mm -hmm. So in the last 12 months, we've maybe added 100 people, which is a fair amount of growth. And one thing that happens, as you guys have experienced probably as well, is, you know, you'll start walking around the office and realize you don't know everyone's names or even what someone does. And there's this (laughs) moment of like paranoia, like, holy shit, like what happened around here? Like, and, and you have to embrace that. You know, even though it feels uncomfortable, you have to embrace that. And so that's that's one thing that I've just been thinking a lot about is how do I make sure that I'm doing the best job I can being accessible to everyone who's just joined this company mm-hmm. and also finding touch points where I, I feel like I'm giving some visibility to people. And so I'm not just that guy who's, you know, sitting in his office in a bunch of meetings or on a bunch of calls, but you're you're, you're someone who's present and, and feels like part of the organization. And then I also think a lot about culture, right? Because you've seen, we've now seen enough stories in the press, whether fairly reported or not, you see enough stories where as a company has scaled from say 100 to 1,000 people or 50 to 250 people, something's gone off the rails mm-hmm. with the culture and, you know, and it, and it can corrupt what otherwise would be a great business. And so- 
how can you use culture as something that actually is a positive feedback loop, not a negative feedback loop? And so basically the same stuff that we're thinking about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Culture the similarities, one, yeah. The similarities are just, uh, what amazing. are some of your guys's tricks for improving culture? Well, so, well, one, we're thinking about, culture. yeah. So w- being a training brand, you know, we have team workouts twice a that. week, yeah. which is, uh, which is fun. There's no, no requirement to go, you know, go if you can type thing. Um, so there is a very much a fitness culture, as you would imagine here. Um, beyond, beyond the workouts that we sponsor, we also find that by nature of who we hire or who feels like they want to work here, we create a dynamic between team members that actually makes them want to work out together, even if it's not CrossFit, right? Not In the beginning, everybody CrossFitted. Um, that's not true anymore. We have rock climbers, runners, ice climbers, you know, there's, there's people that do triathlons, yoga. Sometimes they do it together. Sometimes we're involved, but a lot of times they take that outside of work and, and do that naturally and organically. And that's exactly what we wanted to create, but it's very hard to, to hire people like that because you want talent from a professional perspective, but then also that cultural fit, right? So there's two things that are super important and personality obviously is another one. So we pass on a lot of people where we don't think they would fit in well, which makes, you know, ramping up the team size very quickly, very hard. Yeah. So for you hiring a hundred people in a year, we can relate like, wow. to that. Yeah. It's going to be <laughs> yeah, it's it's a crazy Absolutely. experience. Yeah. I mean, what I love about what you guys just described is I think about mechanisms that break down, uh, break down organizational like uh, hierarchy, right? If you're doing a workout class, everyone's on the same hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the more things that you can do to make a company feel like it has a flat hierarchy, even though, sure, people are at different places in their life or their careers. Uh, you've got VPs and you've got interns. That's the nature of a business. But what I hope, at least at Whoop, is that everyone feels like they have an equal voice in some regard. And and you try to create an idea meritocracy where it doesn't matter who's coming up with a great idea, that idea can still win. So you, you guys have been around since 2012, right? Marcus and I started something in 2012 and then Noble launched uh, five years ago. So it's actually our five-year anniversary. Congratulations, guys. This, this week, awesome. which is pretty amazing. Awesome. So we've been digging deep in the archives uh, to see kind of what, you know, a lot of stuff you remember, but you also forget a lot. So um, what are some of the anecdotes, anecdotes that you remember from early on? Well, uh, the first thing that came to mind when you said the five-year anniversary is that we have this funny tradition um, that's a celebratory dinner, which uh, is at a restaurant called Mother Anna's. Now, this is like uh, an okay Italian restaurant (laughs) in the North End. And I say that because the first time that John and Aurelia and I went there, the company was the three of us. And we had just raised like $300,000. And so we were buying ourselves dinner. Um, at this Italian restaurant. And then fast forward, maybe, I don't know, 12 months later, we close around for $3 million. And we're like, oh, where should we go for dinner? We're like, well, we went to Mother Anna's last yeah. time. And so we went back there with maybe six or seven people. Now, uh, we just closed around um, recently that was a $55 million round. We had, I don't know, roughly 80 people at the dinner and, you know, all of a sudden the whole floor of the dinner was occupied. We were in multiple rooms. I'm like trying to give a toast going between yeah. rooms. <laughs> and you, and I had this funny image that I, I, I was talking about in the toast, which was that at every 
uh, different fundraise dinner, how many seats we were occupying and who was in those seats and where we were in the restaurant. And it's funny to have those sort of visual images for every checkpoint in building Mm -hmm. a company. And I'm sure you guys have versions of that. Whether it be unboxing shoes or, uh, but I think it's healthy, uh, for any entrepreneur or founder listening to this to have those sort of like checkpoints in your mind. Cause even with all the challenges that you face, you want to be able to look at some of those positive moments and, and appreciate the journey. Like so that. we're run, running out of time here, but I can't let you go without talking with you about your top travel hacks. Cause you oh, travel yeah. a lot. Uh, but I, I see that you still maintain uh, your recovery. <laughs> yeah. So there's a few different things for traveling. Let's take just getting on a plane as a starter. The thing about flying is it dehydrates your body. So you want to try to drink as much water as you can. I, in general, drink an absurd amount of water. In the airport, I'll almost drink, uh, I'll I'll get a couple of those tall, smart water bottles Mm -hmm. and and try to knock those out. Uh, I also almost never eat on a plane. The thing about being at altitude is that your body is shutting down non- Uh, primary bodily functions, one of which is digestion. So if you eat food on a plane, it makes you really lethargic and you can actually feel your body just as, you know, not performant at a a high level. So generally try to avoid uh, eating on planes if possible. Now, depending on how many time zones you're going over or not, you can think a little bit about what your strategy is to sleep or not sleep. So I like to try to get on the time zone that I'm going to be on if I am planning to be somewhere for longer than two or three days. There's a phenomenon called sleep consistency. What that means is that your body performs better when it goes to bed and wakes up at exactly the same time. You're building a circadian rhythm that's consistent and then your body gets used to it and then it performs better. This in itself is why traveling over time zones screws your body up because now your your circadian rhythm gets screwed up. So if you're doing a day trip or let's pretend you're going to California for 48 hours, you may actually not want to get on the time zone. And we've seen teams do this where they have a, a game on the East Coast and then they're back on the West Coast, which is where they're based. And what they'll do is they'll function on West Coast time, even on the East Coast. It's a pretty fascinating mm-hmm. concept. So I try to think about that when I'm scheduling flights and for how long I'm going to be somewhere. If you're trying to get on the time zone, that's where I find stimulants and supplements are quite helpful. So If you land somewhere and it's 10 a.m. and you feel like you should be asleep, you know, drink some coffee, right? Mm -hmm. Get through the day. Uh, And I'll try pretty hard to get through the day because I think it kind of shocks your body into shape. The other thing you can do is I like to try to get, even if it's a really light workout, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, just Mm -hmm. sweat a little bit. It can help your body acclimate to a new time zone. I'm a big fan, again, of cold showers. They can like snap your body into function. So those are some of the things that help. Uh, And then when it comes to if you land somewhere and you need to go to bed, that's where I think magnesium and melatonin, I'm a big believer in both of those. And I think you can hit them heavy, you know, if you need to fall asleep. Because again, the key is just getting your body as acclimated as quickly as possible. We'll definitely be taking some of those things to heart (laughs) for sure. It's awesome for you to be here with us, to hear the story 
behind Whoop and to talk a, a little bit about some of these things. There's so much more. There's so many questions I have uh, for you. So we'll certainly have to have you back. Oh, and little known fact, the first podcast that Michael uh, and I were ever on was oh, yeah. your podcast, the Whoop That's podcast. Right. So thank you for, uh, for introducing us to all of this. And I want you guys to know, like, uh, you know, Michael, Marcus, like everything you guys have built is really inspiring. I think you should be really proud of what you've done. I'm a huge believer in in the shoes and the whole brand, and, and I rep it proudly. And, uh, you know, over Thanks, at man. Whoop, we think of you guys as, as uh, you know, a friendly brand that, that we're, we're proud to do stuff with. For sure. The feeling's awesome. mutual. Thanks again, Will. Really appreciate it. Thank you to Michael and Marcus for having me on the Noble podcast. I am a big fan of them and of their business and look forward to doing many more things with them. Reminder, you can get 15% off a Whoop membership if you use the code WILLAHMED. Uh, you can find us on social media at Whoop, W-H-O-O-P, at Will Ahmed. Uh, we're on all the various social networks. And I am going to do a little Q&A for you right now. So Samantha asks, what is your number one tip to improving heart rate variability? So heart rate variability, as you all know, is this balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic activity. And I think if you're already fit or if you're someone who feels pretty good about fitness, pretty good about sleep, you know, some of the basics, one great way to try to improve your heart rate variability is to introduce some kind of a breathing practice in your life. That could be meditation. That could be a more intense breathing technique like a, a Wim Hof method. Uh, that could be a, a, you know, a pretty basic form of meditation, mindfulness. Uh, but I've found personally that the people who do a breathing technique tend to increase their heart rate variability. Mark asks, what else besides COVID-19 can impact respiratory rate? So great question. We just added respiratory rate trends to the Whoop app. So you can now see what your typical baseline is versus your uh, normal daily readings. And that's important because you want to stay within that, that range. What we've seen uh, other than COVID-19 that impacts respiratory rate is smoking. So people who report being smokers uh, actually have a much higher respiratory rate. And, uh, and what's interesting is someone who's maybe even not normally a smoker, if they have a cigar or they're around people who are smoking or cigarette, you name it, that will actually see their respiratory rate increase. Obviously, and another lower respiratory tract infection could also increase respiratory rate. So those would be things like uh, bronchitis or pneumonia. Okay, folks, that's it for now. Uh, wishing you and your families a very, very safe week ahead. All of our best from Whoop.